One of the most vital parts of the book of Revelation is undoubtedly the section that is found in chapters 2 and 3, listing seven churches. These seven churches represent churches that were existent at the time that the letter was written, and they existed in cities around the area or the region of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. Often when the book of Revelation is explored or studied, uh, often these two chapters are quickly passed through or overlooked or really not addressed thoroughly enough to truly appreciate all that is in there. I believe that out of all of the chapters of Revelation, these two chapters alone could you could spend a lifetime learning from and, uh, and gleaning information and insight to the health and desire that Christ has for His church. And it's imperative that you and I understand that one of the Um, one of the manners that we can diminish our personal Bible study with is approaching the Bible with preconceived, determined positions and ideas of the interpretation of any passage. If you objectively look at a passage of Scripture, you must do so as if it is the first time that you are reading the passage to allow yourself to truly see what is there. The reason I say this is that the church that we are going to look at this evening, the church in the city of Sardis, um, is often uh, just simply labeled the dead church. And that's not incorrect. The problem is, is that when the hearers uh, uh, hear that, when the recipients are listening to a Bible study or a message concerning the dead church, a image appears within their mind concerning what a dead church is. Now think about that for a moment. Maybe you've never asked yourself that question. What does a dead church look like? Because that's really the question we want to answer this evening. What does a dead church church look like. Now often when I hear this taught, a dead church is any church that isn't the church that that pastor is currently teaching at. Did you ever notice that? They always want to equate the fact that their church has to be Philadelphia, right? We all want to believe that We are the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, the the small church against all odds. That's us, the church of Philadelphia. In actuality, I would venture to say that most people have the wrong idea of what a dead church looks like. In fact, we're going to look at our passage this evening, and then I believe that Chuck Swindoll summed it up so well in five points of a dead church. I think we need to spend extra time on this particular church. You know why? Because I don't ever want to become that dead church. I want to make sure tonight that we are doing everything possible to avoid that possibility. Okay, basically, I don't want to go there. All right? Now, think about your idea of what a dead church might look like. Maybe some of you have the idea of a church that is very liturgical and is very ritualistic in its practice. Uh, Maybe it's more high church than you're accustomed to. Uh, The worship music is a a piano player and a choir. That's got to be a dead church, right? 
Or maybe to you, a dead church is a church that has completely abandoned the Word of God, just going through the motions, uh, just simply doing what it has always done. Maybe to you, a dead church is one of those that at one time they were the pinnacle of Christianity and now they're a mere shell of what they once used to be. You know, you go to Great Britain and you see a church like, you know, uh, Westminster Abbey or something like that. Or, and, and you go there on a Sunday and you see those large sanctuaries with 15, 20 people in it. And you say, what happened? Is that your idea of a dead church? I think it is interesting that if you look at these words objectively, from the information that we can gather from it, we really have to look closely to identify what a dead church actually looks like. We begin in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remembering then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis was a city in decline. It once was a pristine, industrious, uh, illustrious city. It was gorgeous. It was prospering. It was uh, the center of the trade routes there in Asia Minor. It was a place to be. And yet over the years, they began a steady decline where the industry in which they had no longer became necessary or wanted. So those businesses began to deteriorate and to go out of business and so forth. And you, when entering Sardis, you would see that it once was this glorious city, but it was on its way out. It was in a state of decline. You knew that at one time greatness took place here. It was oh, let's say the motor capital of the world. And, and you knew that all the major auto dealers and uh, audio manufacturers at one time were pivotal, pivotal into the economic health of the city and now it's on the decline like the city of Detroit is today. That's a picture of Sardis where you just see abandoned buildings and ruins by the time the gospel got there in the early Uh, existence of the church. And unfortunately, the church was in the exact same kind of demise. 
it was dead. And, and they didn't even know it, for they had a reputation of being alive. It, what they once used to be is not what they are any longer. And, and it's dying, and most of it's dead, and yet they are unaware of their condition before God. There is no mention of doctrinal error. There's no mention of persecution or opposition, as we had read in the other churches. It just seems to be dead. There's another word I'd like to use for this church in Sardis. It's irrelevant. doesn't matter. Nobody cares if it's there or not. It's not making any difference. It's not making any waves in society. It's not being opposed. It's not being persecuted. So it's therefore probably not being any kind of witness for Jesus Christ or standing in any type of righteousness before the world. It's irrelevant. Just a building maybe that once was or a group of people that were once well known but now are simply dead. And throughout history, we know that the church shortly after this came to nothing. Twice in the existence of Sardis, there were times that the city was prospering that allowed for its demise as other foreign um, armies would come in and conquer the city very easily. Twice the city fell to invading forces because the watchmans had fallen asleep. Twice. Think about that. Wouldn't it be terrible if they were both from the same family? I don't think I'd have them watch again. But twice the city of Sardis fell and it led to its economic demise. Businesses didn't want to continue there. Even the worship of pagan gods declined. People just didn't want to be there anymore because it was too vulnerable. It was too insecure for them to stay and to remain. And the church there seems to have died along with the city. And yet they were still going through the motions of having church. The angel to the church of Sardis writes, verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God we have already identified as being a unique term for the Holy Spirit based on the seven characteristics laid out in the book of Isaiah concerning the Holy Spirit. The seven stars from chapter 1 are the messengers of these seven churches, being the angels that watch over them, or more likely the pastors or the messengers of those individual churches. It is him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. It is him who is writing these words. It is only through the Holy Spirit that life can be brought. To the individual who receives Jesus Christ and moves from death to life, it is a work of the Holy Spirit within their lives. It is the work of the Holy Spirit here to allow and to bring back and to rekindle life that once existed in something that is dead. We're going to explore the concept of death in just a moment to identify what it actually means and looks like. But it is only the Holy Spirit that can create life. Number one, folks, if our church is not on board with what the Holy Spirit is doing, we need to get on board with what the Holy Spirit is doing. Okay? Let's never forget that. Unfortunately, many churches today, when it comes to their understanding and their ideas concerning the Holy Spirit, they are very vague. There's a lot of ambiguity that is 
um, written concerning the Holy Spirit in their statement of faith. When you read the statements of faith that are on the web uh, from different churches, you'll discover that often in many of their theological positions, they're very, very articulate. They expound on those positions very well. But then it comes to the Holy Spirit, and it's very vague. They're somewhat noncommittal. You don't know if they believe that the Spirit is active in the church today or not, or what role He plays in the life of the believer, or how He equips and gifts individuals in the body of Christ for the edification of the body of Christ. It's imperative that we remain with what the Spirit is doing. How do you do that? Well, number one, you be a student of the Word of God. The Word of God clearly teaches us how the Holy Spirit is going to work and interact through the church. Number two, we must be men and women of prayer. We must constantly be asking God to guide us by the Holy Spirit. And number three, we must be sensitive to that leading. We must be sensitive when the Spirit brings about conviction. We should allow that conviction to have its full work and to bring us into repentance that we may be right with God and positioned rightly before Him. When the Holy Spirit opens a door, we should then proceed by faith to go through the door that God has presented to us to fulfill the plan and purpose that God has for us, even if it sounds outlandish. Sometimes God does that, you know. But as long as we're being led by the Spirit of God, confirmed by the Word of God, if it is in an area of your life that isn't specifically addressed by the Bible, then I would encourage you to ask your brothers and sisters in Christ who you respect. What do they think? Hey, I've been praying and I believe the Spirit might be leading me to do this. What do you think about it? I've done that often. Mentors that I have, they can tell me, oh, you're off your rocker. Okay, great. Or no, pursue it. See what God would do for you uh, and see what God wants to do. But it's imperative that we walk rightly in the Spirit of God, not grieving Him by our sins, not quenching Him by our resistance or rebellion. Remember what Stephen said on Sunday when he was standing before the uh, religious leaders there in Jerusalem in Acts 7. He says, you constantly resist the Holy Spirit. We need to be on board with the Holy Spirit. He is the one that's bringing life. He is the one that brings new life. It is Him and only Him. I don't care what the size of the church is. Is the church healthy? And part of that health is the active work of the Holy Spirit within the church. And so he begins by saying, I have the Spirit. And he says, I have you, the messengers. He goes on to say, I know your works. And he stops there. If you're reading the ESV, there's a period there. We don't know what those works are. (laughs) I know your works, period. Doesn't sound like much is going on. Then he goes on to say, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. First of all, imagine hearing that. Think about that for just a moment. There is no approval in this particular letter to this church. He knows their works, but there's nothing to boast of. He doesn't commend them for anything. He just says, I know your works. It is in the present tense, so he's not even looking backwards. He's looking currently at them. 
and that you have the reputation, meaning that at one time you had the reputation of being alive. In the distant past, it's something that was known of the history of your church, which tells me that it was a functioning, healthy, active church at one time. And it had moved away from that. Some have equated this church with the uh, 4M scenario. Starting out with a man, it became a movement, then it became a memorial, and then it became a monument, the 4Ms. Some believe that that is the progression in which this church took. That's possible. But they did have the reputation of being alive, and something happened. Over the course of time, they died as a church. They went through a period, obviously, of dying, and they didn't even know it. If they did, they didn't acknowledge it. And now, currently, they're dead. There's nothing there. It is a dead church. It is a word that is used throughout the New Testament, this word dead here, to describe one who is physically dead, to describe one who appears to be physically dead, meaning dead. There's nothing there. There's nothing to boast about. There's nothing that would indicate that the church is still a church. And yet there are still a few names, meaning individuals in the church that haven't gone that route, haven't died yet. I think this is very interesting. Again, there's no talk about persecution or opposition. There's no discussion about doctrinal integrity. Nothing. Not one thing. Now, some have used that to suppose and through conjecture and speculation come to conclusions, and you might have heard these things. Well, they were very doctrinal and very orthodox, and, but they dried up and there was truly no life there, etc. We don't know that. It doesn't say that. That's an assumption. You know, well, they compromised with every pagan god and they were no longer offensive and therefore they had no persecution or, uh, you know, no, uh, no one objected to them being there. There's no opposition. Eh, we don't know that either. We're just assuming that. I mean, if they want to make statements, please show me where that would occur here in our text. They're dead. There's nothing there. There, there was at one time, but there isn't any more, and we don't really know how it got there. All we do know is that there is a facade. It looks good, but in actuality, it is dead. That's it. That's all we know. Has the reputation could mean that people remember what it once was. Have you ever ventured to a restaurant that you've enjoyed your entire life. And when it first started, it was just, oh, the best place you could ever go for a wonderful steak dinner. Just phenomenal. They just cooked it perfect every single time. It was well known. People came from all over the suburban area to to eat at this restaurant because it was just the best. I mean, they had the best steaks that ever could be made. And then all of a sudden, you go back after not being there for about 20 years, and you say, what happened? And yet they're going through the exact same motions. Dean and I just recently went through something like this. We went back to the restaurant that we went to for our rehearsal dinner. 
the night before our wedding. And we don't really remember the restaurant because during our rehearsal dinner, everybody was in the bar. Now, they weren't getting drunk, but it was the night that O.J. Simpson decided to drive down the highway away from the cops, and so we were all upstairs watching him flee from the police. We hadn't really gone back to this restaurant since that. It's been 20 years. We went back with some family just recently, and we were like, Oh my gosh, I'm surprised anybody came to our wedding after that rehearsal dinner. It was horrid. It was like stepping back into time in a bad way. It's like, and they were still going through all the motions. You could see the pictures on the wall as they were uh, reveling in the glory of what the restaurant had once used to be. And in actuality, it's like you have far, you have moved so far from that point of that, that climactic zenith point that you were at. You have fallen so far from that. They had a reputation. Oh, that's the place to go get. And now, no, that's not the place to go get anything now. This church was dead. There was nothing there. But Christ, in his admonishment to it, gives us five imperatives to encourage those who still remain there and who had not yet died. Now again, we are challenging your presupposition, your presupposed idea of what a dead church looks like, and now we're going to add to this by looking at the uh, imperatives, and there are five of them, wake up, strengthen. He goes on to say, keep, remember, and repent. Let's look in verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your works, I'm sorry, I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Anyone who tells you that verse 3 doesn't contain at least two mysteries within it is not being honest with you. First of all, it's hard for me to fathom that there's anything that could be revived amongst a church that has been classified as dead. And yet there's still something there that God can work with. That if they would get right, if they would repent, if they would remember, God can do something with them. Number one, what a mystery that is. Number two, he goes on to say here, I have not found your works complete. What does that mean? These are the things you must consider before drawing conclusions concerning the characteristics of these seven churches. We must be careful to look at them objectively and to discover what these things are. The reason I say this again is because in the vast number of messages that I listen to uh, concerning the city of Sardis and the church of Sardis, I would say that more than 70% of them based their teaching and specifically the application of their teachings on conjecture and speculation rather than objective exegesis of the text. For example, if there is a denomination that we do not care for, we might want to classify them as being a dead church and therefore outline for you what a dead church looks like based upon our disdain for a certain denomination. Is that fair? No. And it's certainly not objective. We could do that, but we wouldn't be true to the text. 
The reason I say that is because I don't want any of us to leave here thinking that we could never, ever fall into this trap. Because we could. We could die and not even know it if we are not careful. If we don't watch ourselves. If we don't continuously stay in the Word of God and be moved by His Spirit and allow God to work in and through us as He so desires to do, this is His church for His glory. If we begin to substitute our practices and they are no longer based on the Word of God but on the tradition of a movement that we are affiliated with, we are going to, could easily begin that path of dying and end up dead. If we begin to idolize our past without looking forward, if we glory in the old days and not look forward, we can die easily. Again, I think Chuck Swindoll summed it up very well, and we'll look at it in a moment. But there was a portion of it that could be woke up, revived. It could be resuscitated. There's something there that still can be worked with and God gives them that opportunity to do so. Their, their works were incomplete. Those works were undoubtedly love, faith, service, and perseverance. But they were incomplete. There's something lacking behind what this church is doing. It's not that they were doing some things without others. He just generally says your works are incomplete or not complete. To me, that took me back for a moment. I had to look at this and say, what are you saying, God? There's something wrong here. They're doing something, but he doesn't even acknowledge that. He just says they're incomplete. They're void of something. Are they just dead rituals that are being exercised each and every time that they gather? We have no idea. But there is something seriously wrong with what they are doing. I get the impression that the fact that, it, that they are dead supersedes any other problem that they could face. Let's not talk about the opposition or persecution, doctrinal integrity. You're dead. And if you're dead, what do you need? Life. There, there, there's nothing in between. If you're dead, you need life. But there's something here that can be retained. There's something that can be maintained. And there's something that can be resuscitated. And he goes on to say, wake up is the first of the imperatives. It's the command in which he gives us. Wake up. Paul said something very similar to this in Romans 13, 11 through 14. I'll read it for you. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Wake up. The word wake means to become alert, to be watchful, to be vigilant. It doesn't even appear that they had any conscious idea that they were dead. Isn't that scary? But it happens every day. How many of your friends and family are around you that have no idea that they are dead before a holy God? That they are spiritually dead and they have no clue of that reality? 
They think that they are living because they exist. You know, I exist, therefore I am. And people come to this base conclusion and we're surrounded by these people. Now this church seems to be in that same quandary. They just don't realize that they're dead and yet they gather, they meet, they do something, but they are dead and there's no point of going on beyond that. He asks them to wake up. Undoubtedly, he's using it to allow them to remember the faults of those who fell asleep watching on the wall and allowed the invaders to come in and to ransack the city of Sardis. He goes on, the second imperative is found in the word strengthened in our text. He goes on and wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. The word strengthen simply means to cause someone to become stronger in the sense of more firm and unchanging in their attitude or belief to strengthen or to make more firm. One of the questions that I have that I was not able to answer, had this church slid into a recession of indifference towards the world around them? That's a great question. I wish I could answer it definitively. The reason I say that is because I think indifference is plaguing too many of our hearts. We just don't care until it affects us. Then we care. We don't care what's happening over here or what's taking place in that country or what's happening in, in this group of people. Or we don't care unless it comes and affects my personal family or my personal life, etc. There's an indifference that I see people um, slipping into when it comes to their gathering at church. Is church necessary anymore? There's an indifference. There's an indifference to daily devotionals. People praying and reading their Bibles daily. Does it really matter? And and they're slipping into this indifference. And it's very troubling to me. Has this indifference actually caused the death of this church? We don't know for sure. But it's something to consider. But there's something that remained there. Yet I find your works to be not complete in the sight of my God. And therefore, he says in verse 3, the third of our um, imperatives, he says, remember. Remember then. What does he want them to remember? What you received and heard. He's undoubtedly talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's talking about that life-giving message that brought life to them originally through the power of the Holy Spirit that they had moved away from. Last year we did a whole thing on the gospel of Jesus Christ because we were convinced that many Christians no longer know what the gospel is and really understand the power of it and how it moved the individuals to do what they did in the time that these words were written and how it has moved Christians through the millennium to do what they've done for Christ's sake even to the point of laying down their own lives for His glory. They forgot how the gospel affects our everyday life and the manner in which we carry ourselves, the manner and the conduct in which we um, carry ourselves in as individuals. People have forgotten the impact of the gospel. Obviously, they have also. And my question is, is that do we not um, parallel possibly some of the symptoms of this dead or dying church here in our country? Again, don't be fooled. 
We have no idea how many people went to this church. The size of the congregation is never taken into consideration when this is being looked at. We don't know if it's 10 people or 1,000. We have no idea. Here in America, a large church has to be a healthy church and a small church has to be an unhealthy church. Is that true? No, of course not. There are some large churches here in America that should be ashamed that they even call themselves church. Does that make a small church better? No, it doesn't. A small church can just be as unhealthy. It all depends on what's happening within the church from the leadership on down. So it's not the size of the church and we have no idea of their practice. So we cannot simply say that it's a liturgical church or it's a high church or it's a ritualistic church. We have no idea here from our text. So to simply pigeonhole a a denomination or to pigeonhole a a typical church that you might be aware of, I think is wrong to do without considering the symptoms and reflect upon this objectively to see if anything we are doing may be contributing to our downfall. So remember that, that what you've received and heard, those were the, the gospel and the apostles' teaching. Number four, keep it. It means to hold on to it. It means to observe and to obey it. Not only remember the gospel, but now obey the gospel and allow it to bring life once again to this dead church. Allow it to sustain and to revitalize those things that are dying and are on their way out. Allow it to come. And then he says, repent. The bottom line, get right with God. That's what he says here. Again, repentance is not simply feeling sorry for our sins. It is not a remorse that is carried because we have gotten caught for our sins. Repentance is the acknowledgement of our sin before God and the turning to God and away from sin. That is repentance. It is circular. It is not linear. It must be away from one and towards the other. And we must look at it that way because today there are many emotional moments that people have in their Christianity where they feel sorry for their sin and they may feel conviction for their sin, but they ask for forgiveness, but don't really have the desire to change or to confront their sin head on and to make um, the proper decisions to hold themselves accountable so they don't fall into that sin once again. So not only do we need to remember the gospel, we need to keep the gospel, we need to repent when needed, as according to the gospel. And then he goes on and gives them the ultimatum. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. He is saying here that I will judge this church. I will come at a moment that you do not expect. And though the language is similar to that of the second coming of Jesus Christ, I do not believe that's what it's referring to here. He's referring to his dealing with this particular individual church. Like a thief is a phrase that was used 
to describe one coming unexpectedly, uh, coming at a time where they weren't anticipated, coming at a time when they were not prepared. That is the word that is used here. And they will not know what hour he comes against you. And the word against means to judge. I come to judge you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. And the names mean individuals. There are still individuals in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Again, notice that he doesn't look at individual churches within the city of Sardis, because there probably was only one. It was the church. The plethora of churches we have today in America has caused great confusions, and the separation and divisions that has caught has created great problems for the body of Christ. But there was one church, a group of people that were gathering for the purposes of Christ, and he was addressing them, and amongst them, though the vast majority of them were dead, Christ individually saw amongst them those who are still living. Aren't you thankful for that individual relationship that we have with God? It is also this passage that allows me to interact with people of other denominations who I personally could not fellowship within because of their doctrinal teaching. And yet you meet that one individual who loves Jesus and the Word so much And they are affiliated with that denomination and hoping and praying that they can be a light unto that denomination and see revival and repentance take place within that denomination. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Wouldn't it be great? There are still those amongst those people. He still has a few names. This is why I think we must be very careful not to use broad strokes when it comes to to our lambasting of Christian churches, other Christians, etc. We don't know the hearts. God knows the hearts. We must be extremely careful. Can we call out error? Yes, and we're called to do that. Should there be discussion on doctrine and theology? Absolutely. Are there things that we can agree to disagree upon? Sure. Are there things that we cannot agree to disagree upon? Yes. And those things will lead us to a separation and fellowship. But Jesus here sees amongst these people who have not soiled their garments. There is an interesting, interesting historical aspect that needs to be considered at this point that Christ may be playing upon. In the Roman culture, Obviously, they hosted many pagan gods, and Artemis was one of them. Artemis had a uh, large temple there in Sardis and was worshipped in a variety of different ways. One of those ways was through pagan expressions, orgies, if you will, sexual immorality, which we read about constantly through these churches. But did you know that the practice was that you could not approach those pagan temples in filthy array. You could walk to the temple and you could enter the temple only if you were arrayed in clean clothes. But in your worship of that pagan god, you would often soil those clean clothes. 
And then you could leave and then you'd have to change and then come back and worship again. Jesus is saying there are those who never soiled themselves. There are those that never defiled themselves. There are those that kept themselves pure even amongst a society that seems to pressure them in every way, shape, or form. That's what we've seen in every church, that there were these pressure points that the society placed upon the individual Christian that tempted him into sin, tempted her into sin, and these individuals resisted it. Also, Sardis was known for its wool. Of all things, wool. And garments were very important to the uh, prestige of the city. And so he uses this term, obviously connecting on, on that regard, and they will walk with me for they are, and then he says this, worthy. Again, the only thing that makes us worthy is the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, a promise that he gives throughout the New Testament of clothing us in the perfect righteousness for all eternity in Christ. And then he moves to, I will never blot out his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The book of life is another fascinating aspect of the book of Revelation. It is specified several times throughout the book of Revelation, and a lot is told to us about this book from the book of Revelation. For example, we know that the names that are found in the book of life have been written there since the foundations of the world. So those who are in the book of life have been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world. Elected before creation ever began that you were going to be His. We could just stop right there and have Chris do a praise set and just think about that for a long time and praise God for that wonderful, wonderful truth. Throughout the book of Revelation, we discover that these names have been written from that point. Listen to these words in Revelation 13, 7 through 8. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and the authority was given uh, it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, that is the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 17.8 goes on to say about the book of life, The beast that you saw was and is and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and has to come. The book of life will be the instrument of final judgment. Listen to these words. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And then he goes on one last time to say, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Only those written in it shall be allowed to enter the kingdom of God. As the book of Revelation finalizes this phrase, the book of life, with these words. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, that is eternal life. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, this book, we have been placed within it from the foundations of the world. It was Christ who placed us there, not us placing us here. The reason I bring that up is because this verse here has been used in many cases, in many of the sermons, to prove that one could be blotted out of the book of life. But if you read it, especially in the Greek, you will discover, and in the English, that the emphasis is not on the blotting out. Okay, look with me again. It is, the, the emphasis is not on the word blot, his name out. That's not the emphasis of the sentence. The emphasis of the sentence is never. I will never blot you out. It is an affirmation. He is encouraging the individual that you have been written in this book. And though everything is dying around you, you will not die. You will be with me for all eternity. And I will confess you before my fathers and before his holy angels. That's what he is saying here. The emphasis is not on the erasing. The emphasis is the strong affirmation of the word never separate us from Christ. This is the same emphasis that was placed on these verses. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the emphasis. So if someone comes to you and say, hey, brother, you got to make sure that you're not blotted out. I just have to make sure that I'm in by following Christ. That's the indication that I have been predestined from the foundations of the world. A person must acknowledge Christ, must follow Christ, must acknowledge their sin and repentance and faith in Him and live for Him for all eternity. That's what this word is saying. That's why we have to be very careful when we look at things, we look at them in their entirety. Now, in the Old Testament, there are references that Moses made and that the psalmist made about the book of the living. Do not blot us out from the book of the living. He is simply stating uh, that those who are living were in a book and he didn't want to be taken out of the book by passing into death. The relationship here between this analogy or illustration that Christ is using and those in Sardis was this. It was the relation with the national registry. It had to do with the fact of citizenship, both in Rome and in Sardis. When an individual was born, they were written in the, the annals, the registry of that city. When they died, they were removed. Okay? And that's what he is paralleling here. If a Roman citizen was born, he was first written into the book of that city, and then he was, uh, his name was then taken and written in for the book of the Roman Empire to show that he was a citizen of Rome. And we know how important that citizenship was to Paul in the book of Acts. And so he's paralleling that here. 
I will never blot you out. Because what was happening there in Sardis as those were dying, in the city that is, their names were constantly being blotted out and they saw their city crumble and not being repopulated again. And as the Roman Empire went on, you had to be written in one of these registers to know that you were a Roman citizen. And that's the parallel that he is making here. And it must be looked at from that point of view to truly understand what he is saying here. Though the people around you are dead, if you repent and you overcome, I will clothe you with white. I'll never blot you out. That's, that's the emphasis here. And I will proclaim you before my Father and before His angels. And then he goes on to ask us to consider, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I heard a story once, the story of a local church that was literally on fire in downtown, in the downtown area of their city. So there was a pastor standing outside the church as it was burning, and the pastor saw it burning, and the firemen came and, and began to try to put out the flames, but the church could not be saved. The pastor said to the man, the fireman, he said, I have tried so many times to get you here to this church. And the fireman said, I'm sorry, but I have to be honest with you. I never saw the church on fire until now. He saw that the church was lacking. He saw that the church was dead. There are three characteristics to a healthy church. Number one, the church is here to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Number one, that's number one purpose, our church, is the glorification of God. Number two, our church's existence is here for the edification, the building up of the saints. So the first is the exaltation. Second is the um, edification, excuse me, and number three is the evangelization of the entire world. Evangelizing the world. That's the three purposes of our church. That's what we geared everything towards. Number one, the exaltation of God. Number two, the edification, the building up of the saints for the teaching of the Word of God. And then the evangelization of the entire world. Chuck Swindoll in his book wrote The Five Signs of a Dead Church. And I want you to hear these before you leave tonight. I want you to come alongside with me and to make sure that we don't enter into these things. And if we are, let us repent and move out of them. Number one, he said a dead church worships its past. A dead church worships its past. Maybe there was an amazing story of conversion and the lives changed, but it was in the distant past And that is why I said earlier that we can rejoice in what God has done 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. But what about now? I don't want to live in the past, he says. A church that lives in the past is always living uh, in the past and often is neglecting the present and is often never planning for the future. Number two, a dead church is inflexible and resistant to change. 
Again, a dead church is inflexible and resistant to change. Sometimes in the church we are flexible where we should be inflexible and inflexible where we should be flexible. Okay? Now there are things we cannot compromise on. That is the integrity of the Word of God and so forth. But there are other places that we must be flexible and to change when change is necessary. Number three, a dead church has a lazy leadership. Complacency and lethargy set in as the church is in spiritual cruise control, not wanting to do anything new or even rethink the way things were done. I will tell you that at the beginning of this year, we have sat down and said we are examining every aspect of our personal church and we are going to change those things we feel needs to be changed. Number four, a dead church neglects the youth. Maybe it's because they are tending to an age, uh, aging congregation, so they fail to reach the next generation. And again, we are doing everything we can to solidify that here in our church, making changes where changes are necessary. And number five, the signs of a dead church, it lacks evangelistic zeal. If new converts are not coming into the church, it is only a matter of time until the church stagnates and is spiritually dead. Please remember those five. We need to re-examine our own lives first. Have we grown indifferent? Have we become complacent? Has lethargy set in? Are we growing? Are we exploring new things? Are we taking steps out in faith? Are we inviting people to church? Are we sharing the gospel when those, present, those opportunities present themselves? Do you know that 30% of people polled say that if someone would invite them to church, they would go? That's one out of every three. One out of every three. Are you taking those opportunities? Are you turning away from them? See, for, us, for our church to be healthy, we need to be healthy as individuals. And collectively, from the leadership down. We are not too prideful to look at something within our church and say, hey, this isn't what God would want to do anymore. There's just times to move forward, not only in things like technology, but to understand our culture, to understand that we now live in a world that is antagonism towards Christ has really risen. And that atheism and agnosticism is on the rise And yet hope and despair are prevalent everywhere. We need to understand who we're speaking to. We need to understand the culture in which we live. We need to understand how the Word of God needs to be contextualized with today in its integrity and not changing it to simply make it fit within our society's wants or needs. These are big things. To look more objectively at the Word, at the world, everything that we can remain where God would want us. I don't want to die, do you, as a church? I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. So instead of us presupposing that a dead church looks like this, let us consider that it could look like us. And we don't want to go there.